You're listening to the Upper Room Frisco podcast. To learn more about your Frisco, please visit upperroomfrisco.com. Jeremy used to always say, Lord, make it anointed, and if you don't, then God make it funny. Um, so I'm sitting on a stool here today. Um, I'm normally worshiping, twirling in the corner over there, but I hurt my back this weekend, and um, it's it's getting healed as we speak. Mm-hmm. But I'm up here because not today, Satan. Uh huh. Um, I'm a little embarrassed because I don't have any jokes. And I don't know how we're supposed to uh, preach here without doing that first. Um, but um, you know, I'm really good at talking about me, so I'm going to start there. <laughs> I'm an expert in the subject. Um, so, gosh, I have wanted to write stories and make movies since I was a little girl, writing stories and forcing my little sister and all my friends to act them out. Yes, I was that child. Um, when I was in high school, I, um, made, I made not one, but two Vampire Slayer movies, <laughs> which you will never see because VHS is no longer a supported platform. Praise and bless. Um, there were fight scenes and a moving love story, but I digress. Um, I went on to an expensive film school where I got an expensive film school degree that I now keep in a $12 Ikea frame <laughs> in a box somewhere. And then I went on to work on film sets where I learned that my expensive film degree was not as helpful as Google. And and I learned a few things. I learned that I could work really hard and I could kick butt and it felt really good. And I was doing all the things to pursue my dream and yay. And um, somewhere along the way, I met a beautiful, anointed, freakishly blue-eyed man who for the past 13 years has been staring into my soul. Anybody else? You know. If you've, if you've talked to Jeremy Shuck, then you know what I mean. And... Um, I married him. I married him real good. And we made four babies in five years. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. And um, suddenly, I, this just hardworking, kick-butt girl found herself in this diapering, unshowered, lonely hole of forgottenness <laughs> where... All of the people that I'd known, they all went off to Hollywood and they were all getting these amazing jobs and my, my, my beautiful, dreamy, freakishly blue-eyed, anointed husband was pursuing his dream of learning how to communicate the heart of God to people and steward people's hearts well. And um, I, I felt a little left behind. It was just days felt monotonous and I wanted to know where that 
kind of that dreamy girl had gone. And tonight I kind of want to talk about what we do when our hearts are hurting, disappointed, or confused, and we don't really know what God is doing. And to do that, I want to talk about one of God's friends. I want to talk about King David. Um, so uh, let's start by going back a little ways with King David to um, Saul's anointing. So when Saul is anointed, it's this big, huge deal, right? All the 12 tribes of Israel are invited. They make a huge announcement. It's like, woo, Saul. And by contrast, when David's anointed, um, well, first, he isn't invited. <laughs> And second, he doesn't have the ability to talk about it, and no one can speak of it because um, it was treason. Awkward. And afterwards, instead of this big, huge fanfare, um, he can't speak about it, and he goes back to the lonely hillside to be a shepherd. And back in that day, being a shepherd, you know, is not your classic nine-to-five job where, you know, you put in your hours, you clock out, you go home. It was weeks, months, on the hillside, away, lonely, caring for the sheep day and night, right? That's probably a breeding ground for some disillusionment and doubt, right? But what in that moment I imagine that David isn't thinking about is that you have Saul over in the palace the spirit of God has left him to rest on David and he's being tormented. And so Saul's looking for somebody to fix that problem. And then out of nowhere, one of these young men around him says, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. How does he know that? Was David like on a speaking tour? Did he get anointed and suddenly he got like some sort of record deal and he's out playing in towns around Bethlehem? Have you ever thought about that? I was just thinking about that recently, obviously. Um, but I think if you look to, uh, sorry, Proverbs... A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before kings. Or Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. I don't know if you've ever gotten a prophetic word before that is just so profound or you've had a dream in your heart that is so big and the prophetic word comes and then you're sent back to normal life. And you have to figure out how to steward the waiting. And I feel like a lot of us are waiting for God to open a door rather than pursue what we love or pursue a craft until he does. And I, what David was doing during that time is he was making ready. I don't know. He wasn't like, didn't have YouTube and Google. He couldn't look up king lessons. But he went back to what he knew to grow in the skill that he'd already been given which is such a beautiful thing. He's playing his lyre. He's, you know, he's throwing rocks, making songs. And it brings him before the king. And the king, he loves David. It says he, he grows to love David and makes him his armor bearer. And it's like, yes, woo, prophetic. It's, I'm, I'm at the palace. It's great. 
And then war breaks out and Saul goes to war and David goes back to his dad's house and watches his brothers go off to fight with Saul. Awesome. Anyone here pursuing a dream or prophetic word feel like sometimes you go two steps forward, three steps back? Good. Not just me. Sweet. Um, When Winston Churchill was 15, he wrote a letter to his mother that said, one day I'm going to save England. And he wanted to be in government from a very, very early age and actually joined parliament when he was 26. It would be 40 years before he would become prime minister. And that was right at the brink of World War II. He... He is said to be the one man who could have saved England, that he was born for such a time as this. But something that I find so profound about his life is that for 10 years, right before he became prime minister, he was taken out of office. And he spent those 10 years trying to get back into office because he felt such a call that that was his calling but he couldn't. But what he did with that time was really, really cool. He spent it growing as an orator or a speech giver. He was writing about the history of World War I and other great leaders and becoming a military strategist. And what I think is so neat is that even though he wasn't in the place that he wanted to be, being outside of government gave him this different view of the rise of Hitler and him having a voice to actually speak out against what was happening without being in the collection of the appeasers in the government that were already there. So God was actually protecting Winston Churchill for a time such as this when he would be, he is said to be the only man who could have taken us through World War II or taken the English through World War II. So if David hadn't stewarded his time on the hillside well with the lion, with the bear in the hidden place, he wouldn't have been ready for Goliath when the time came. And when Goliath comes, it's like, it's like his moment. It's like his grand, like destiny is beginning to unfold. David is stepping out in front of all of Israel and there's just this, it's, he's getting some payoff for all of this stewardship of his heart that he's done. And we know that he stewarded his time well because of how he approaches Goliath, right? He comes this young pipsqueak kid and just says to him, you know, I'm gonna cut your head off. It's bold, right? And I, I love the next thing that, that it says. It says that David ran towards the battle line. How cool is that? You know, I feel like some of us, we see the Goliath in our life and we kind of want to ignore it or we want to kind of skirt around it when the truth is that our tipping point for the dream that we've been contending for is on the other side of the battle with that Goliath. So at this point, back to David, politically, he's connected perfectly. He is winning every battle that he goes into so much favor. He is 
He's got so much favor with the people. He is best friends with the king's son. He's married into the king's family, and he is being taught how to be king by the king. I mean, that's the mentor you want. You want to be king. You live in the palace. You get trained by the king. It's like the prophetic is working out perfectly, just how it's supposed to, right? Yay, God's so good. I stewarded my heart well. Now everything's going to be fine and easy from here on out. Until Saul's jealousy and his rage cannot be quenched, and David is forced to flee for his life. Anybody been there? (laughs) Where everything you've fought for, everything that you've built or thought that you were supposed to have just kind of gets pulled out from under you. And that same... I can just imagine the mind torture, the doubt, the did Samuel get it right? Was Samuel wrong? Did I make a mistake? Did someone abort the prophetic over my life? And the confusion that comes in. Because it, it was all going the way it should. Everything was, was working out perfectly, right? I had this thought... What if Joseph had stayed in Potiphar's house and everything had worked out and he would have missed the divine appointment in the jail cell to be brought before Pharaoh to become the leader that would save Egypt? Or what if Esther's life had stayed normal and she had stayed in her in Mordecai's house and never had been given the opportunity to save Israel? what we feed our hearts when we're confused and we're disappointed and we don't understand matters. Um, I recently bought a bunch of houseplants because Pinterest and Joanna Gaines told me to. Also, Jeremy won't get me a puppy. Yeah, you tell him I said that. Um, and I've been learning a little bit about my plants because I'm trying to take care of them because they're expensive. And so I had one, I remember I had one plant in one room of my house and it didn't matter what I do to take care of it or, or, or water it or prune it or whatever. It just, it, 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 would, it wouldn't, it wouldn't. And so I took it and I put it in a different room in the house with no change on how I was caring for it, and it flourished, and it came back. And I also learned that I can give my plants too much affection because I can overwater them, and they don't want that. And so it's, they're more like a cat. They just they don't want my affection unless they want my affection. This is not a cats versus dogs discussion. (laughs) Um, And um, a few weeks ago, Peter Lewis was here. (sighs) Oh, I love Peter. 
Dr. Lewis. Um, and I'm sitting on the front row, and he brings up this scripture verse, using it in a completely different context. But um, I kind of lost it and started weeping on the front row because it just hit me in a way that I don't know that I listened to the rest of his sermon. Bless. Sorry, Peter. Um, but it was uh, John 15, 2. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, when I was doing research online about how to take care of my plants, I found some things like this. Dead or dying plant parts are not only unattractive, but also harmful to the plant as they can provide food and shelter to harmful pests and diseases that could spread to the living plant parts. Hmm. Um, I'd like to point out that he doesn't cause the death to occur, but he will take it away. Um, pruning. Pruning is to train a younger plant how to grow and can save much time and hassle pruning later to prolong the, life, the lifespan of the plant. We're the plant. Um, but what hit me and the reason that I became a puddle um, when Peter was speaking was because both of those ways to care for a plant, um, either way you get cut. And cutting hurts. Um, one way of cutting is for survival, and the other way is for increase. And I believe that we have a choice in whether we're going to be one or the other. So when I was going through my season of baby darkness, I, I was really given an opportunity um, to shift my perspective and understand that um, my kids are a pathway to promotion and that God knew that there were other gifts that he had down the line for me and he has, there would be other things that would come against me and the fastest way that he knew to grow my character in that season was through my children because there was something, a gift that he wanted to give me. And for you, it may look like something different, but there is always a gift in there. Um, because later on, there came things, circumstances, you want to call them pruning, you want to call them <laughs> choices of the enemy to try and trip me up. But I have had experiences in my life where I've experienced real pain, real confusion, um, I have lost and have been lost. I have failed and have been failed. And I have at times allowed the balm of self-pity and bitterness to take the place of Holy Spirit as comforter because it feels really good. <laughs> It's like a drug. It gives you a momentary feeling of, 
of relief that actually leads you down a darker hole to death. And the way to get back to sobriety is hard. It is easier to feed the addiction than it is to fight for sobriety. Um, and so how do we do that? How do we steward our hearts through these processes um, in order to, to, to keep them clean and to get rid of the dead stuff? Um, I wrote down a list, a list, I have a list. I love lists. So does Liz. Um, I have a list of six things that um, I think are helpful. Um, number one, bring God into your process. It sounds kind of maybe like a no-brainer, um, but in John 15, 4, a little further down about the, the branch and the vine, it says, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. What I love is that he is the vine, we are a branch, which means that when we get cut, he feels it too. In Psalm 34, it says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He's near because he's part of us. He's near because he's in us. He's near because he's the vine. Number two, choose to praise and choose to be thankful. We did that earlier tonight. Hallelujah. We do a lot of that here. If you have been here for more than five minutes, you will have heard us thank him, praise him. It's really, it's really a core belief of what we are all about. Um, but how, like, part of the reason that we know we have such a beautiful, I chose to talk about David, King David, because all throughout his life, it's like he kept a journal for us through the Psalms. So we get to know really what was going on in his mind. And you see him commanding constantly throughout Psalms, commanding his spirit, commanding his soul to bless, to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. It is evidence that when he could not see, that when he could not feel, that's the prescription of the response that we give. Number three, feed yourself the word of God. It is the protein to feed to your heart to create muscle memory of faith. There have been deep, dark, deep, dark moments where I was so lost. And in the moment, God brought me a scripture verse or a promise. And I held it in my hand as tight as I could when I felt like I was drowning. I thought I was going to break it. (laughs) And then when I came back up for air, it's like as I opened up my hand, that little bitty scripture, little bitty tiny words, was as strong as steel and was anchoring me to the shore. His word will not return void. It will be your anchor. Number four, guard your head and your thoughts. 
Do not let one single thing that does not line up with the word of God near your heart when you are going through pain. I mean, even if it feels childish and dumb, you know, on the like playground taunts when people are like, you're dumb. No, you're dumb. The second that something is, that's not godly, that is a lie, comes near you and starts to try and play itself in your head, just keep on, keep on saying the promises, the scriptures. If you need to find a scripture, go Google promises of God and speak those over yourself. Put them on your mirror and just look at them and say them every morning. Put them in your car. Put them where you need to keep them right in front of your face. Woo. Love it. Romans 12, 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Number five. This one's going to be fun. Let it go and trust God. (laughs) Embrace the mystery, man. For all the energy that we expend trying to figure out why something happened or why someone else deserves justice because of what they did to us, we are actually baiting the enemy to come in and bring bitterness and self-pity. Keep your focus on the Lord. Keep your focus on what he has done because we walk by faith and not by sight. Yeah? Yeah? This is how we fight our battles. Number six, look for the invitation. We get to choose if hardship and pain are our enemy or if they are our opportunity. In Deuteronomy 30, it says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. Rejection and disappointment are going to find you no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what your future is. The enemy is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't like you. When Jesus was put up on that cross and he was bleeding and breaking and being rejected, his pain was bearing fruit because it was pulling us into the family. I want the enemy to fear my pain. I want him to fear that every time I get cut, I'm going to bloom and I'm going to ransom hearts and I'm going to show up at the gates of heaven with people I never was supposed to. Because I choose to praise and I choose to bloom. In 1975... A prophet named Bob Jones had an experience where he died and he went to heaven and he met the Lord and the Lord asked him a question. He said, did you learn to love? 
Now, I love my husband. You've been around me for like five seconds. You know, I love my husband. And I love my babies. And they love me really well, most of the time. But I don't believe, if that is truly what God's going to ask us, I don't, I don't think he wants to know if I love the people that love me back and who were easy to love. I think he's going to want to know what I did when I was rejected, when I was disappointed, when I was failed, betrayed, and how I chose to respond to it, how I chose to love. James 1, 2 to 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Which leads me to one of my favorite scriptures in Romans 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. (laughs) If you're not in hope, it's because he's not done yet. Transforming love is what happened on the cross. And transforming love is what happens when we have every reason and every right to be self-protecting and bitter and cruel, but we choose the opposite. 